The Buncombe County District Attorney's Office has been under heat locally, as well as with press freedom advocates nationally, for prosecuting reporters with the online publication The Asheville Blade. The charges of littering and trespassing in Aston Park stemmed from a Christmas night incident in 2022 involving the unhoused. We're obligated to, to handle the DWIs, we're handle, handle the misdemeanor assaults, the trespassing cases. I'm Matt Pikin, and this is The Overlook, a daily podcast about the news, arts, issues, and trends of Asheville, North Carolina. Today is the second part of my two-part conversation with County District Attorney Todd Williams. He won't discuss the Aston Park case directly because it's still active, but he does talk about broad policy and gives an analogy about a case his department handled several years ago. We also talk about the evolution of his approach to the job, including his view on seeking the death penalty, and he lends context to how his office handles charges related to vagrancy. Charles Payne has seen what's wrong with public education from three perspectives, as a student, as a teacher, and as a black American. With the help of the Magnetic Theater's program to cultivate playwrights, Payne has written a new work of art called The Classroom Ain't Enough. It's storytelling, poetry, and original music woven into what the playwright calls a choreo poem. Payne says the overarching message in the narrative is that a child only educated in school is an uneducated child. The Classroom Ain't Enough premieres June 2nd and runs through June 17th at the Magnetic Theater. For tickets, go to themagnetictheater with an R-E I began this half of my conversation with Todd Williams with a question offered up by one of my listeners. With a backlog of more serious cases sitting on the desk of the county district attorney, why is his office devoting any resources to charging people with felony trespassing and littering? Okay, yeah, you're right. I can't comment about, and I'd be happy to come back on your show when the case is disposed of. I do want to push back and say that while we do have, we have had a number of challenges over the last several years. Obviously, COVID, the courthouse was shut down for over a year. Violence has spiked. Shootings have spiked here in Asheville and nationwide. It's not limited to Asheville, unfortunately. I don't know what I'm trying to say there, but you get my drift. And that being said, our case dispositions are actually a little bit ahead of other districts here in North Carolina. We're a little behind in terms of our prosecution of first-degree murder, but it's not. These cases are inherently complicated anyway. They generally take two to three years with the volume of evidence that we have to go through now, with all the digital evidence that we have. And we're talking about gigabytes, sometimes terabytes of data that has to be disclosed to the defendant, has to be reviewed. And these cases don't come to trial in six months anyway. I'm not going to talk about Aston Park particularly, There was a case a few years ago that I can analogize towards as an example for that might elucidate how we prosecute these matters. A few years ago, we had a restaurant in town who took to social media and said, despite the governor's proclamation that we're in an emergency situation and restaurants are closed, indoor eating is, you got to be masked, blah, 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 and no more than 10 people. We're early days of COVID. A restaurant said, you know what? Civil liberties, freedom served daily, and they had T-shirts that freedom served daily and had fried eggs on it. And and the restaurant 
made their violation. They opened. They were the only restaurant in town, the Asheville Independent Restaurant Association. All of them got on board and said, okay, public health, public safety, we're going to comply with the governor's order and our local commission's order. The one restaurant opened, APD went out, gave them a warning. They opened the next day, APD went out again. They either gave them a warning a second time or they cited them. They left and they came back the next day and they're open again. And I think at that point, APD issued warrants and perhaps maybe there was an arrest of the proprietor and, and then the, and the, the business was actually charged as well. And then it wasn't until Buncombe County administration, the civil lawyers in Buncombe County, filed a nuisance abatement action against both the business and the landlord of the business. Most leases require a term that the business be oper- operated lawfully. And the landlord, I believe, threatened an eviction that shut the practice of opening during the pandemic down at this restaurant. Our philosophy is we need to obtain some accountability because one restaurant had opened in violation of the court order at risk to public health. And with all other restaurants being closed, this was not a time for one restaurant to potentially profit and exploit this, this situation. So our goal was to achieve something, and we offered multiple different dispositions shy of a jury trial. Dismissal against the charged defendants if the corporation would just pay a fine of a certain number of days that they were open in violation. All of our negotiations were rejected. And it was one of those things where let's we're doing this for civil rights. We're doing this on principle. We want our jury trial. So in that case... We took it to a jury trial, and it was very interesting. We don't know how these things are going to come out. And this was, there were a lot of different political viewpoints on, that goes without saying. But anyway, it was tried, and we had four Democrats, four Republicans, and four independents on the jury, and they came back guilty. And this was a class three misdemeanor. This was a very low level. Sometimes we can offer diversion. We can offer dispositions that are reasonably distasteful to the defendant. But when the defendant comes in and says, every defendant is absolutely entitled to a jury trial. And and if they're not willing to take accountability, we're going to go to trial. So that's, I just want to paint that picture of they made it hard on us, but because this restaurant made it hard on us, we didn't just say, we know what, it is too hard. We're just going to let that go. Because the message to the rest of the community was in case Delta came back and all of a sudden the governor issues another public health order, we're now in a position where we can't enforce it and there's no criminal accountability because the DA just let that one go. I just want to make clear, you brought this case up as a comparable to the Aston Park case saying you can't talk about the Aston Park case, but here's a case that where there's a similar... It's analogous. And I want to be clear, it's analogous in the sense that the defendant didn't accept any entreaties to deal with this before going to court. Yeah, it's analogous. Yes, we didn't view this as the trial of century. It was not rape, robbery, and murder. These are the matters that are on the forefront of our agenda. However, that being said, when all efforts to find a resolution that would ensure some degree of accountability failed, the defendant has a right to a jury trial, and we took it to trial. So that's that, that's the analogy, because you asked about how this fits with we have other serious cases. We're obligated to, to handle the DWIs or handle, handle the misdemeanor assaults, the trespassing cases. Sometimes they're handled quickly and easily, but sometimes they're... And the other thing is that 
we can use some of these cases as a trial experience for training purposes in their office too. So it's not a, a complete waste in time and resources from a from an experiential. So the, the DA's office and any DA's office has discretion, right, in terms of what cases to prosecute and what cases not to. I'm sure you base some of those decisions based on the evidence at hand. And We look at the evidence. We look at the prior history for the defendant. Are there other things that other considerations that go into, is it we ha- only have so many attorneys working for us that if we take on these certain kinds of cases or if there's a certain line that it doesn't cross this we're looking at two years or three years of this being in our files if we take this on. I'm just wondering, are there any other considerations aside from just pure evidence or lack thereof and prior history that go into your decisions about whether to prosecute or not? We're to be governed case by case. And within each case is its own world. We look at the evidence, we compare that to the law that's on the books. We look at what kinds of outcomes we can achieve, either through diversion, through treatment court, through probation, through a prison sentence. And some cases also require us to consult with victims. And while the victim doesn't necessarily control the disposition of a case, we have to consult with them. And quite frequently, the whole process goes a lot better. It goes without saying if the victim assents to the result. One question did come in about your prosecution writ large of rape and domestic violence cases. I'm wondering, have you seen these go up in your time? What's happened in your nearly now, what's been eight years that you've been in office? The biggest change procedurally was the creation of the Family Justice Center, which is a a co-located facility that's designed to make the whole process more integrated for victims. And you were involved in that, weren't yes, you? That, yeah, that started, yeah, I was in a, much of the planning and it was inaugurated in 2016. Can you be clear about that succinctly? What is the center's purpose and how does that affect day-to-day justice from your office's vantage? Well, it's co-located with law enforcement, with my office and DSS. And it's right across the street from the courthouse. Helpmate and Helpmate is the domestic violence advocacy agency, and our voice are also our voice is the sexual violence advocacy agency are all located within that agency. So there's there's a multidisciplinary services that are offered within that. The child advocacy center also has a presence there as well. Child advocacy center assists us with child victims of crime. And uh, I mean, I'm very proud of the child advocacy center, which is a subcomponent of that, and I could talk more about that, but. The idea is to ensure that we're making contact, both law enforcement and the prosecutors off my office, at an early juncture to establish the relationship with the victim, to get the victim to court, so that we don't have the situation where we turn around in the courtroom and we're calling out a name and they're not there and the defendant gets a dismissal. We're getting our subpoenas out. We're getting the victim there. We've established that relationship. We're ensuring that it's about building relationships with the victims. In domestic violence cases, the victim is often in a very fraught situation. They may have been abused, but they're not really, their emotional set might be back and forth. So sometimes the victim is asking us for a dismissal when we've already, there's been six or seven charges in this individual's history. And we're in a situation where we have to say, no, ma'am, we need to do something else. We're not just going to take another dismissal Mm. on this case because we're concerned about you. And that puts us in a kind of an adversarial relationship with the victim. Sometimes we're required to do that. It's a very careful balance point for us because 
there's this notion of re-victimization. And we want to be trauma-informed as to how we interact with victims. And we want victims to have a voice in the process because that's empowering to them. And that, I think, helps keep them potentially alive in the long run. Yeah. Our goal is to navigate in a trauma-informed manner a way to, to get accountability, to secure safety for that victim, also give that victim some voice in the outcome. The old school prosecutor would say, we got zero tolerance. I think what we've seen throughout history, throughout since 2014, the, our national dialogue on justice and whatnot, reality is more fraught than zero tolerance policies can, can give for, can allow for is what I want to say. Step into the weird, fantastical wonderland of Alice and the White Rabbit through the lens of Asheville Contemporary Dance Theater. It's a family show with colorful sets and costumes in collaboration with the new studio of dance. Alice and the White Rabbit opens May 26th and runs six performances through June 4th at the Intimate BB Theater in downtown Asheville. For tickets and info, go to the company's website, acdt.org. In your eight years now, looking back, have you evolved in how you do the job? You came in with a certain mindset, I'm going to be different than the previous prosecutor in these very concrete ways that you could cite. Now that you've had a good span of history, you've won re-election twice, what have you learned on the job that has affected how you do things now that you would not have even thought about as you entered the job or even in your first term? You hit me with these things, and you're not hitting me cold, but my first, my first response is when I was elected in 2015. And I don't mind to say this. I'm, I'm philosophically against the death penalty. I think that it, it doesn't achieve its policy aims. I think, it's, I think it's very fraught as a penal measure. I think North Carolina hasn't executed anyone since 2006. I think the cost, both in terms of the monetary cost to prosecute someone through all the federal appeal, all those other things are good arguments as to why the death penalty is a, a, a really fraught policy notion. And when I was running, a lot of folks were like, you need to come out and declare that you will never seek the death penalty. And I gave a lot of thought to that. But I ultimately decided that and with our national discourse now around abortion and some other items, we've seen a DA removed by Ron DeSantis down in Florida. I think I came out right on this. I decided that I would always use discretion. Look at the evidence. Look at, uh, look at what the law is and apply the evidence to statutes that we have at hand and determine prosecution based on disc discretion, not as a policy. But to come back to being elected in 2015, I guess it was eight to ten weeks in, a couple goes missing. And they were newlywed, 40-something, maybe late 30s, mother-to-be, six months pregnant. They go missing. And their remains were found in a man's buck stove. And I was in their house when, as this thing unraveled, and investigators were on scene, and they had the sonogram photograph of the of baby to be that they yeah. hadn't named on their bookshelf, and it just was a terribly tragic thing. And it goes without that's an understatement, traumatizing for me personally to a certain extent. But ultimately declared that capital, 
as a death penalty case. That was your first one. Yeah. And it was difficult for me to do that. But in light of the facts there, we had a child to be, a mother to be, a couple that he stated he used a sawzall to, to dismember them and cremate their remains in the buck stove. And we couldn't, we actually, the female Christy Schoen was her name, was so completely cremated that we couldn't recover really any of her remains. There were teeth found. and The trial in and of itself, I worked a lot with the victim's family. If we had a trial, this goes back to some of your other questions. We have community, let the community speak. And I absolutely agree that there are cases where the community needs to speak. But the victim's families when they contemplated their loved one's ashes coming into the courtroom, frankly, they wanted another resolution to the case. And this is another case that would be Monday morning quarterbacked, certainly, by listeners of this podcast, and it was at the time. But we allowed him to plead guilty, the defendant, Robert Jason Owens, to three counts of second-degree murder, and he got 60 years in prison. And the victim's families were incredibly relieved there's there gonna be some who, even if we obtained the death penalty, would be dissatisfied. That was there are some real hardliners out there. <laughs> What's worse? Uh, What's more right? Exactly. Wow. We need to go back to the old school with public executions. Or mm. I see that on on social media every once in a while, and mm. uh, obviously we don't have that. It goes without saying. And like I said, I think North Carolina is functionally done with the death penalty, although it's still on the books. So while a lot of folks might have been dissatisfied and had grave questions about why this guy wasn't placed on death row, I think that it made it somewhat more palatable when the victim's families all came in and said, we support this resolution. Let's talk about how does your office intersect with homelessness? Tell me about why this is a particular issue for you. Well, this is a hot topic in the community right now. We've seen an increase throughout the pandemic of homelessness in our community. And everyone who is homeless and unhoused, safe living arrangements should be a community standard. And I think there's a public safety component to that as well. But my office obviously intersects with the unhoused community when the unhoused are charged. They're charged quite often with nonviolent, low-grade, scarcely more than a speeding ticket type misdemeanors, sleeping in public, sleeping on a park bench, if you will, public urination. Everybody has to urinate on occasion. Drunken, disorderly, these are the kinds of things that we see all too frequently. Folks are arrested and they come into the system. And I think it's important to go back to basic principles, and I don't want to sound lecturing in any way, but it's been my experience that while people understand that Alec Murdaugh down in whatever county in South Carolina, he's charged with murder, he gets a trial, he gets a jury, he gets the presumption of innocence, he gets a lawyer. He sits down in front of a judge, he has a trial. And I think sometimes, and maybe I'm wrong, but it's been my experience that people are frustrated with basically those notions of presumption of innocence and burden of proof on the state, which is the DA's office, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, certainly on first-degree murder, but also on second-degree trespass, which is one of the least of the crimes in the book. It's the same as public urination, class three misdemeanor. So... When uh, someone is charged with a crime, all the burdens on the state, which requires us to put someone on the stand to testify to the conduct that the person is charged with. And in terms of crimes of vagrancy, 
that we typically see with the unhoused, that requires police testimony. So we, we understand the situation out right now with, with the police department. We're all very cognizant of the fact that the police department has lost dozens and dozens of officers since the pandemic and George Floyd. Those two things hit the department really hard. And while the arrest occurs and the charge occurs, do we want all those officers who could otherwise be out keeping our streets safe, sitting on a bench in court to testify on all these matters? Now, that's a question, right? What I'm saying is, in effect, in regard to crimes of vagrancy, you can't really expect the criminal courts to address this situation, nor do I think we should. There is this thread that I sense in terms of the questions that I receive. The business owner, the complainant, whoever called the police, somebody who peed on the sidewalk in front of their business, whatever, they see the arrest and then they see that same individual out there urinating again at the end of the day. And a lot of times, at least what I hear, there's a frustration that they're arrested and there's this misapprehension that the district attorney's office has dismissed the case. What happens is when that arrest occurs, if they're taken to the magistrate's office, the magistrate does one of two things. They either hold them on bond for their first appearance in court the next day before a judge, or they release them on a written promise or an unsecured bond, and they set a court date a month out, could be two or three months out, okay? So I just want to, in terms of, I think there's a general misapprehension for the multiple authorities in the court system that all have their own lawful and individuated discretion in that system, if that makes sense. Yes. And you've touched on it. So discretion plus resources. Absolutely. In resources should, you're exactly right to point out, it should be a, the legislative body of the municipality, city council, Buncombe County Commission. Those are the entities that should be the first line of defense to ensure that proper civil resources are in place so that safe housing and safe communities can develop within the broader community. The last thing I want to ask you, and you've been really generous with your time and candor, you sought me out for this interview. I think that's really unusual for a person in your position to seek out a journalist to talk with them about something. I guess I want to ask you, why did you reach out to me? And if there's anything you want to talk about that we haven't discussed, let's talk about it. The DA's office functionally does speak in court constantly, right? We speak in court, in open court, on the record, and we also file things in the cases that you've asked about. We file paper documents in the court file. And that's the way the, D- the district office speaks to the, the, many of the questions that you've presented me on this podcast. And I will just confess that I am frustrated that there seems to be a media environment where, you know, if it's TV, they want to put me on camera rather than going to the documents in the court file, right? But I can't go on camera pre-trial. Go to the documents in the court file. Report what's in the court file. Come to court. Listen to what the testimony is. Do that. We have the Citizen Times that print journalism is ideal for covering what happens in court. It's more discursive. They can get more in the meat of things, whereas in a three-minute three segment on TV, a lot of times you just hear from the victim or you see some, uh, like the Murdoch trial, the highlights from the testimony of the day, but you don't really get into the, the, the facts and circumstances. Uh, print media allows that, but it goes without saying that Citizen Times is just a fragment of once, what it once was. This year, right now, this week, we're, we have two cases being tried in the courthouse. We have a rape, tra- uh, a rape trial, 
going on the fifth floor and a, a drug trafficking trial going on the seventh floor. And the focus is Aston Park. We are trying very serious cases week in, week out in the courthouse. And I asked to come on so that I could tell you that and that people could hear from me that this is what we're doing. I think our media environment here is frankly not doing a good job of getting to the courthouse and covering the facts and circumstances and things that happen in the, in, in the courthouse because of staffing, because of whatever other issues that, that journalists have. And I heard some of your other podcasts both I'll admit, I listened to the Aston Park defendants, I listened to Chief Zach, and I thought, Matt will ask me questions, and I'll be able to answer them. And I like podcasts a lot, too. Am I going to listen to music on my walk? I'm going to listen to a podcast. Sometimes it's a toss-up, and podcasts can be very interesting. It takes up all my time. I want to thank Todd Williams for being a guest on The Overlook. If you missed part one of this conversation, please go back a tick in your podcasting app and listen in. If you're not already getting our newsletter, you're going to want to subscribe because now it's a quick daily digest of news from all over the local media landscape. I promise I will never make advertising look like editorial content. Subscribe for free at podavl.com slash newsletter. Today's conversation was recorded inside the BB Theater in downtown Asheville. Our theme music, Maker's Song, comes from the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. Get new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook. <laughs>